reading Cinematic Fanatics. In this particular case, you hellbound book hounds! Ow, ow, ow! That was a far better howl than my last slick page flip. The only thing more satisfying than a gorgeous and flawlessly executed standalone slick flick pick is one that honors, if not exceeds, the splendor of its novel source material. Sometimes a screenplay or film has been novelized into a riveting read. Conversely, an analog-bound book is often condensed and converted via a complex digital undertaking to a cinematic adaptation. Some of the very slickest, sleekest, passionately picked flicks I've had the pleasure of enjoying throughout the course of my falsetto prophet lifestyle originated with a slick page flip I took pride in perusing. The age-old debate remains as heated and vitriolic as ever. The lingering, pesky, vexing question, is the slick flick pick better than the slick page flip? Is the film better than the novel material? Sometimes this answer proves easier than slicing your finger's flesh on the corner of a page in a hell-bound book. I offer the example of Winter's Bone. The flick is superior to the novel, to be sure, but not vastly so, while no doubt novel, source. However, the slick page flip of Sphere by Michael Crichton, one of my favorites, outshines the merit of its cinematic expression. Coming from a cinephile such as yours truly, this is a cocksure statement, indeed. While I will not perform this companion contrast comparison analysis between the primitive novel and polished flick on every slick flick pick, that would be a shit ton by the way, as I have already posted 36 slick flick picks with many, many more in store, but I will pick a select few to perform a novel companion comparison episode for your listening pleasure. I will grant you the gift of an either-or-both discussion when I find the right pairing of bound paper and waxy film. Enjoy, you hellbound book hounds and cinematic fanatics, while I investigate these various bound collections and similar comparisons to their corresponding flick. Remain on track with your deft, rapt attention intact through an anorally pleasing perusal as you sate your curiosity with each passing slick flick slash page flip pleasure on my Kimohawk Sessions rack. Snuggle the fuck up with a bloody, slick, hellbound book in your secretive nook. Why is your book bloody? Because you are reading it and flipping the pages so feverishly as you are dead set on arriving at the nail-biting conclusion. That is why you get paper cuts on your thumb or whatever finger you choose to flip each page. As you earn each paper cut, you'll feel these fully fleshed out characters in your gut. Whether binding open or cover shut, you've wed the novel. The flick serves merely as your mistress slut. Here, we unwind some novel binding, for this is where final cut greets paper cut. The slick flick pick we will be discussing today, pick 45, slick flick pick, Easy's sleazy case, trailing a west coast ghost, facing debts, chasing coquettes, and misplacing cigarettes, devil in a blue dress, 1995. And while that flick was undeniably entertaining, rare, and provocative, the book furnished so much dialogue from its bleeding paper cut fingers, feverishly flipping pages of the source novel, I find this flick to be incredibly slick, but how can you fuck up a story about teaching an old L.A. new tricks, a private-eyed dick, his trusting but trigger-happy sidekick whose flame is already lit on his wrathful wick as they track down the mixed-race gal in a blue, racy, lacy gown who, more so in the novel than the film, proves a fucking lunatic. Our protagonist, war vet hero, Easy, sometimes sleazy Rollins, finds himself in too deep, far over his head, as his curiosity ushers him to an unseemly, 
unsafe place where streets run the color of her lips, blood red. Today, you are gifted the treat of audibly checking out this edition, fifth selection of Slick Page Flip from my Chemohawk Library Rack, Hellbound Binding 5, Slick Page Flip, Devilish Devil in Blue Dress Distress, Blonde Slash Brunette with a Cigarette, Easy Reading Book Comparison Between Novel and Film, Devil in a Blue Dress, Your Freestyle Logophile, Bibliophile, and Cinephile, Falsetto Prophet. My first recommendation is do not knock your local library. It is said library that I have been able to take brief possession of and read Devil in a Blue Dress and many others. This novel is relatively easy to read. It's straightforward, not particularly long, and I found the reading to be enjoyable and seamless. I highly recommend it. It's a good weekend book if you're a fast reader, or it's something that you can also take your nice leisure time with, and you will enjoy it all the same. I will tell you a little bit about the book, the author, and what brought us here today. Walter Ellis Mosley was born in 1952. He's an American novelist, widely known for crime fiction. He has written a shit ton of best-selling mysteries. He created the character hard-boiled detective Easy Rollins, who is a black private investigator living in Watts in Los Angeles, California. He's also the first black man to receive the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. He was born in Los Angeles. I like seeing that because there's a certain grittiness and rawness and authenticity to a piece of writing composed by the same author who lives in, grew up in, and knows the territory in which they're writing about. The same could be said about James Elroy, but today this is about Walter Mosley. He had a mixed race background, his mother was Jewish, his father was black from Louisiana. He was an only child, so that is something that we have in common. And he ultimately decided that he was going to write about things that moved him or unmoored him or had some effect in his upbringing. And it is no stretch of the imagination to make the connection that he talks a lot about race in his writing. Racial conflict, racial understanding, racial growth, racial misunderstandings, racial complications. This is all mentioned throughout the course of his novel, and it's done in an intelligent way. Mosley still resides in New York City. He also says that he identifies as both being black and Jewish and has strong feelings on both. Specifically, Devil in a Blue Dress was written in 1990. This was the first novel to introduce the Easy Rollins mystery series and character. It's considered detective fiction. Technically, Mr. Easy Rollins in this book is not a detective, but he is on the precipice and he is entering the embryonic stage of becoming a private investigator his own business, an official private investigator, you can tell that's the direction things are heading by the end of this novel. He says of the novel, when he wrote Devil in a Blue Dress, he didn't know it was going to be a mystery. This novel helped Mosley define a mission for himself as a writer. Mosley put the setting of Devil in a Blue Dress in Los Angeles. He considers that his psychological base. He used the rich narratives of his black southern relatives in order to reconstruct historically, socially, and tonally the world of black Los Angeles in the 1940s. Of the novel's focus on violence and danger, he mentions that you couldn't depend on the law to protect you. Devil in a Blue Dress was a success that inspired the now prolific Mosley continue on, not just with the Easy Rollins character series, but other novels and writings as well. It garnered praise. Many described it as having a rich atmosphere or being richly atmospheric and socially provocative. It won the Seamus Award from the Private Eye Writers of America, as well as the Edgar Award nomination for Best New Mystery. The Independent Mystery Booksellers Association named the novel one of the hundred favorite mysteries of the century. And of course, as you will hear with my accompanying Slick Flick pick, in 1995, a movie version was made which starred Denzel Washington as the titular character Easy Ezekiel Rollins. The movie was a success because of its stellar cast, including Denzel Washington, Don Cheadle, Tom Sizemore, and Jennifer Beals. Mosley has gone on to write eight other novels that include or incorporate the Easy Rollins character. I am remiss. I feel slightly retarded because I can tell you so much more about film than I can books. I regret somewhere between moderately and deeply not spending more time 
reading novels, whether I was alone in my private chambers or out in a social situation, I should have spent more time reading. I feel like I'm playing catch up and I feel like I'm playing the fool to an extent. Had I been reading more and watching fewer films, I think that my vocabulary could have been expanded considerably and having a more deep and diverse well of words to pull from in my lexicon would have increased my overall happiness, sense of glee, and accomplishment. But I am playing catch-up, which is better than not playing at all. I will give you a brief breakdown of the main characters from the book. In a very broad overview sense, I can clearly see that this film production was very directly spawned from the novel. There are identical characters, there are characters that are very similar in their pneuma, but they are changed slightly, their name or a quirk or two, but the vast majority of the characters introduced in the film are straight out of the novel. A lot of the dialogue is pulled directly from the mind of the author through the mouths of the actors who play the corresponding characters from the book. The tone is the same, the overall sense of time, place, setting, circumstances, that all jives. Really, I would say that the novel is darker. It explores more trauma, sexual abuse, identity issues, the apoplectic nature of a bunch of different races and cultures that have been shoehorned together in a small community. There's a lot more talk of violence, both from the war and presently. I would say it is almost a indisputable fact that the novel is darker. I really enjoyed the novel. I found the novel to be shocking, guttural, real, but it also is written in a very pleasing way and that you don't have to sit there and assess and reassess and make wild assumptions about the character's motivations. It's spelled out very matter-of-factly. I think the film is dark, but it could have been darker. It could have explored more Shakespearean, soul-searching, dramatic moments. I think that there could have been more character development between some of the main leads, but I really enjoyed the film as well. If I had to tell you which is better, I think the book is superior as far as plot and how we are taken from location A through the alphabet of locations to the conclusion with Z. But what I really like about the flick is the cast, which you just cannot have in a novel. No matter how interesting the characters may be on paper, a lot of that gets lost to translation, it gets lost to imagination, but when you're watching Tom Sizemore hold a fucking switchblade to the eye of Denzel Washington in the kitchen, or when you see Don Cheadle pick up the phone at Easy Rollins' house, Rollins' residence, yes, a lot of that is straight out of the novel, but it doesn't pop with the same ferocity and ineffable artistic expression and juxtaposition. It's just shown almost immaculately how these characters come alive in the film. I would say it's almost a tie, if not for the fact that, again, much like the Supreme Court justices on occasion, I am already biased and that I'm usually going to select the slick flick pick over the slick page flip. But this was a tough one. This is in the category of Winter's Bone. It's tough, but I really, really enjoyed this novel. Easy Rollins, he's the protagonist. Full name is Ezekiel Rollins. He fought in World War II. He lives in a segregated Los Angeles. And as you see, mostly in the film, but more so in the novel, he is extremely proud of his home. DeWitt Albright, brought to life so maniacally and colorfully by Tom Sizemore. He's a white man who takes odd jobs to perform favors for friends. And in the novel, he has some bodyguards, Manny and Sharif, and he dresses in white clothing. Joppy Shag. This is the owner of Joppy's Bar, also shown in the film. He has a smaller role in the film, but he's no less important, particularly for some of the major plot points and driving the narrative forward. But he used to be a heavyweight boxer, and he is very possessive of this bar, this marble top bar that he has at his bar. In the novel, Joppy beats two people to death, Howard Green and Coretta James and he's ultimately killed by Mouse. Some of that is similar to the film. He does die at the hands of Mouse. But as far as beating up Howard Green, you don't really hear much about Howard Green at all in the film. A lot more time is devoted to his character in the novel. Daphne Monet. There is a striking difference between the personification of her, the titular devil in a blue dress, 
in the film and in the novel. She appears white, but she's basically a mixed baby. And Frank Green is her half-brother, and she is the love of Todd Carter's life. Until things are made a little bit more clear, and she suffers a pessimistic fate, in a way, in both mediums. You learn that her real name is Ruby Hanks. More time is devoted to that revelation in the novel than in the film, but you get the gist. And the rest of the characters have smaller roles. Matthew Tehran, that is a name change. So it's Matthew Tehran, T-E-R-A-N in the book. In the film, it's Matthew Terrell. But the vast majority of this, whether it's omitted or slightly revised, it doesn't make a huge difference. All you really need to remember is that there's about eight central characters, and then there's a lot of side or ancillary characters. There are several themes that are present in this novel. You have sexual perversity, animal symbolism, racial prejudice, money, physical violence, and war. And lastly, independence and survival strategies. That's a fucking lot of information. That is a shit ton, a smorgasbord, a cornucopia of detail. I will just go over the highs of the highs. This information, including the character breakdown, was collected from Gradesaver.com, Devil in a Blue Dress Study Guide. So with sexual perversity, remember, this is taking place many years ago. Things were more volatile. There was unrest. There was civil unrest. Things were up in the air. There were certain laws that were not either in existence yet or they were not being enforced. It was a lot of day-to-day, if I'm not working but for this GI Bill, if I get fired from my job, at the aircraft company, I have a mortgage on my home, nobody's going to step in and assist me. So it's just a different time. But with sexual perversity as this specific breakdown, this is explored in more haunting detail in the novel. Matthew Turan, Daphne Monet, and Richard McGee, this is present with some of these central characters. Now Turan, or Turan, is a pedophile. This is very briefly glossed over in the film. But in the novel, he's clearly seen with boys, like young Mexican boys, that are basically described as his sex slaves. And this, of course, would play into the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles that you hear of, particularly in these neo-noir or noir films. But usually, you can always count on these types of artistic cinematic adventures to go to really dark places. It is consistent in every noir film that I have enjoyed, whether it's Devil in a Blue Dress, LA Confidential, Chinatown, The Black Dahlia, there are central common denominators to these films. It deals with rape, incest, drugs, the murder and discarding of people that are considered to be irrelevant or that are considered to be subhuman, cesspool of corruption, and usually the characters are either trying to, in a paltry way, justify their behavior or they are completely nihilistic and indifferent to any harm that ripples from what they decide to throw in the estuary. There's also a connection here between power and depravity. So you've got these politicians that do what they want because they can, because they control the local police, because they control the campaign donations. They have money, they have means, and I think that just affords them a canvas to exercise their sick fucking proclivities. And this politician, Tehran, had become so accustomed to his warped views of sex and love that he is unashamed of expressing them even in front of a stranger, in this case, Easy Rollins. He sees Easy Rollins as a Negro. He sees him as someone that is a tool that he can use for his own machinations, and therefore he expresses no remorse and no no misgivings, no fear about being caught or captured or anything. Daphne Monet, you learn a lot more about her sordid history. She was introduced to molestation, pedophilia, and incest at a young age from her father. She talks about how her father molested her when she was 14, and this this really kind of started at the zoo when they were watching these wild zebras act so carefree and unbridled, and it just kind of took you down this, what should have been a nice, pleasant afternoon at the zoo morphs into something macabre rather quickly. And you also learn that Daphne Monet is no longer really right in the head. She's become a chameleon's chameleon, blending into the surroundings that fit her needs at that time. And there are times where she's violently contradicting herself, and it seems like similar to the character of Evelyn Mulray in Chinatown, she is expressing these deep-seated resentments and trauma in the present time. Animal symbolism, there's comparisons to 
Easy seeing himself as a bird when he looks at his own lawn and the nature. He has a means of escape. He's ultimately seeking independence. If he could just pay off his mortgage, then maybe he could fly free or at least have the possibility of doing so. He notices that there's a dead mouse in the corner of the police station when he is being unceremoniously interrogated. And there is a character in this novel named Mouse. Mouse is kind of his right-hand man, although Mouse is not stable, to say the least. But Mouse is very small, much like the life form of a mouse. But he also is wild, and he acts on instinct. He will kill at the slightest provocation, and he will turn on even close friends. But there's also a built-in irony because he is the antithesis of shy and quiet. He is very loud, he's very bold. Daphne is construed as a chameleon. Having been hurt to the point where she is devoid of trust, she develops what she calls survival strategy. Racial prejudice. I would say there's something that's either hinting or shouting from the rooftops overtly the concept of racial prejudice in this novel. It's 1948. There's a large dichotomy in this city, in this state, in this country between black and white. Communities are segregated. Easy has less than pleasant altercations with several white men in the book. Mr. Albright, who's basically a gangster. Mr. Carter, the detectives Mason and Miller. They have no compunction about calling him various slurs throughout, and they do so with the same level of indifference and tolerance that you would ask for more cherries in your Manhattan. The novel begins, Easy is surprised to see a white man walk into Joppy's bar. This, of course, comes after some explanation of where Joppy's bar is and the type of patrons that normally inhabit it. But it's not only that DeWitt Albright is a white man, he has money. He dresses in fancy clothing, which innocuously is also white. There's talk of how things were in the army and how he suffered at the hands of racist ideology, even when he was putting his life on the line for his country. And there is also mention of there being a seemingly salient connection between him and his ex-employer, who is Italian. Easy thought that they would have more in common because they were both seen as minority groups. But in the end, it was not and it did not play out the way that Easy anticipated. He talks about in chapter 22 that the police do not care about crime in the black community unless white people are victims. He asserts the paper hardly ever reported a colored murder. And as I mentioned, Benny was a first-generation Italian-American who was his former boss. But Benny feels superior to Easy because he classifies himself as white and Easy as black. Though Easy's relationship with his former boss the author suggests that race is not simply a matter of skin color, as is evidenced by Daphne, who is quote-unquote colored despite looking completely white. Daphne's skin color makes her feel as though she does not belong in the black community. This is very fascinating. It's fascinating because of when this was written. This was written in 1990, but it's talking about a time 40 years before, and then I'm just reading this novel now. So it's interesting to see generationally how all of these come to a head. Money. Money is the source of power. It's also a wellspring for corruption and for these dark affairs and intrigue and for pursuit. Money is the reason that Easy gets himself in these pickles and dill pickles, not sweet pickles, never sweet pickles. But it's also why he ultimately slides into the transition state of deciding to become a private investigator, which he will go on to be a successful private investigator in later novels. Joppy the former heavyweight boxer who is now a bar owner, explains that Mr. Albright will get involved in most any business as long as the money is good. When the novel begins, Easy is focusing on paying off his mortgage, which is why his job at the Champion Airfield was so important. The murders in the novel, mostly, are fueled by money as well. Joppy kills Howard Green and Coretta because he is host to an extremely deep and violent rage. Also, Mouse, who does place a lot of value on the concept of loyalty, is also angling and very adamant about his share of the almighty dollar. Physical violence. Physical violence is incorporated rather frequently. Mouse is extremely trigger-happy. Joppy will beat people with his bare hands. The police officers are violent with easy when they take him into custody. Mr. Albright uses violence to instill fear and guarantee compliance. Mr. Albright wants to save his own skin and his money, but can be cruel at times. Daphne Monet is shown to be capable of violence up to and including the point of murder. Lastly, we have two concepts, war and then independence and survival strategies. 
So Easy carries his experiences as a soldier in World War II very close. He's constantly talking about the crimes he committed, not just as a soldier, but as a human, when he was from Africa to Italy, through Paris, and into the fatherland itself. He brings up war experiences often in the novel. In the movie, he basically doesn't talk about it. Easy experienced racism in two facets during his time as a soldier. He was subjected to the army's segregation and other manifestations of racism. He was in a black division, but all the superior officers were white. Also, Easy was involved in liberating a concentration camp. These all play a factor in his ability to see that racism exists all over the world, and he said that Jews should understand his plight as they have been in a similar predicament all over the world. So these are all very historical, and these are very telling concepts that are spilled out over the page. Easy has had to adopt strategies to survive, not only in the war, but since. Easy's instinct for survival is almost a character in its own right. He sometimes talks about what's called Easy's inner voice, which basically could be its own character, and he will not fret or sidestep stooping to being animalistic and looking out only for himself if he needs to to survive. Also, Daphne, the devil in the blue dress, is an extremely independent character, but unlike Easy, she does not have a home base or source of pride to protect. She only wants to protect herself because she feels as though she does not belong anywhere. The themes are rife, and they are subtle sometimes, but this is not a subtle book. This is a book that attacks things with temerity, and it attacks things with brazenness. You get out of it what you put into it as far as how you choose to untangle this web of corruption in Los Angeles in 1948, but regardless of how you choose to see it, there's a lot there. There's a lot of plot points and moments of character development, and there's an underlying tension that you can feel throughout the pages. But this is Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. It's a very good read. I highly recommend it. I learned a couple of new words from this novel. The first word is concatenation, which means linked together, or concatenate as a transitive verb, to link together in a series or chain. The second word I learned is technics, T-E-C-H-N-I-C-S, technical terms, details, and methods. Example, in the world of virtual culture, technics is nature. Now we split this binding wide and navigate a noirish world of disingenuous, colorblind persuasion. DeWitt Albright to Easy, one of my favorite quotes from this novel. We all owe out something easy. When you owe out, then you're in debt. And when you're in debt, then you can't be your own man. That's capitalism. Sounds a little nihilistic, doesn't it? I love it. A big takeaway before we get started. Easy is not a good guy. He takes blood money. He fucks his friend's women. Dupree, Mouse, Daphne. He has killed and would kill with zero compunction as he lays out repeatedly. He did horrible shit in the war. Is he haunted by that? It's unclear. He also lets Mouse go around killing folks. He also lies. I would say you could call him maybe an anti-hero in the sense that he's the protagonist and he's the central character whom we spend quite a bit of time with. But I'm not going to say that he's a hero. He's absolutely not a superhero. He's really a flawed motherfucker who, throughout the course of the novel, you see is swimming at the shallow end of a deep pool. He is out of his element. Yes, the characters that he encounters are outright malevolent, but I'm not going to say that Easy is a white shiny knight. He's not a knight in shining armor. He is basically a devil in a fedora because he has a nasty sinister side that is always boiling below the surface. They do tone this down in the film, though. They talk up his better natures. They pick an actor, Denzel Washington, who is inherently charismatic and likable. I think this might have been a mistake. If the goal was to make a film version of this novel where you really like Easy Rollins, then Denzel Washington was the right selection. But I think if they were going to pick an actor that played more to the characterization and the reality of who Easy Rollins is in the book, I think they should have either had like an Alonzo Mosley version of Denzel Washington from Training Day, or they should have had Ving Rhames or some tough motherfucker in there that will not be trifled with. And you can just see, as you saw Ving Rhames and the great character shown in the film Rosewood, someone who is truly haunted by their past. We get more focus on Easy's time in World War II in the novel. I like that because I'm fundamentally interested in World War II. The movie just glosses right over that. You get a couple of voiceover narrations, but that's about it. It was Africa to Italy to Paris to the fatherland. Following Easy was like following Band of Brothers. He sees a shit ton in World War II, 
he covers a large swath of geography, and much like Tom Sizemore, who conveniently plays DeWitt Albright in the film Devil in a Blue Dress, is collecting sand in the film Saving Private Ryan, A.Z. Rollins could have collected sand from all the different countries that he was in as well. Joppy. Now Joppy, who we see also in the movie, we learn more about him in the novel. He was a former heavyweight boxer. We learn how he met DeWitt Albright. He is an interesting character, and I like that the novel spends more time with him. I also like the way that, for example, DeWitt Albright, he is a fish out of water. He's a white man in a predominantly, if not solely, black establishment, and he's scanning the room. He's always sizing people up and investigating the details. He wears a Panama hat. It is a great description of the character's visages and wardrobes in the novel, which you would have to do because you cannot see them. We learn why Joppy loves the marble top so much. His uncle was a bar owner. The bar belonged to him and he died. Now this is discussed quickly, and it is discussed while you're getting much more plot-heavy points in the film, but here it's given its due justice. The rendezvous where Easy meets with DeWitt Albright on Alvarado is different. Easy meets more peeps here. He meets the two henchmen of DeWitt Albright, including a doorman. This was not the way that it happened in the film. We learn that Easy's folks were absent and deadbeats, so this helps paint a little bit more of a backstory for who he will ultimately become, and I appreciate that. I appreciate learning about interesting characters. Albright speaks about the law. He says that laws are for the rich to oppress the poor. This is a very fascinating selection of words, because in a way, it's almost as if DeWitt Albright is empathizing with Easy and his situation. There is one line glimpse of this in the film, and that's about champion aircraft firing Easy. So you get a very brief flavor of it, but in the novel, you get the full meal. He gives $100 in cash to Easy, just as it happens in the film. And DeWitt Albright, we learn, used to be a lawyer, but he pulled a gun on a client. So he's always been a little unhinged, or at least willing to do the one thing that will ensure compliance and a nice reward for him. But this is not discussed at all in the film. John's speakeasy existed long before they repealed Prohibition, we learn. And I love how this is stated in the novel. If you knew the right words, or if you were a regular, Hattie Parsons would let you into John's speakeasy. Her nephew, so Hattie Parsons' nephew, is Junior Forney, just as he was in the film. Howard Green gets quite a bit of discussion here in the novel, not so much in the film, but he was a chauffeur for Mr. Tehran, and he was beaten to death by lead pipes. We will learn later, of course, that this was done by Joppy. Zapato cigarettes, just as in the film. Junior. He smokes these cheap-ass Mexican cigarettes. And we learn that Junior killed McGee, which is different than the movie. In the movie, it's Albright's gang, but here we learn that Junior actually played a significant part in the murder of McGee. There's more detail in the book about Easy's layoff, which it's not central to the plot, but it is paving more of a justification for why he's so dead set on getting money and participated in these shady, seedy, sketchy jobs. And then we get this dialogue that's described almost word for word in the film. He used to play till the cock crowed, but that old cock don't crow nearly so much no mo. The language that's used in the novel is distracting. In the film, it doesn't bother me as much because it's just more of a lingo. But when you're reading written words and there's contractions and the words aren't spelled correctly, so, so much, no mo, this is M-O. I know it's supposed to be more, but this writing, while it may be realistic and it may be accurate to a location and a time, it's distracting to read. So that's actually a mark against the book. I mean, you can't fault it for trying to be accurate, but it's kind of a pain in the ass when you're trying to read these sentences and you put a lot of attention and you put a lot of emphasis on being able to read the words correctly and then to have them be spelled wrong or contractioned out and it just gets a little messy. Coretta asks for $10 from Easy after letting him hit her spot, but he will pay her later. <laughs> in this book, Easy is a little bit more clever than he was in the movie. In the flick, it is simply implied that he paid her the money. Easy receives a letter from Mouse in this novel, but that did not take place at all in the film. We learn that Mouse killed his stepfather, Daddy Reese, and Clifton. So he's killed people in the past, period. And on page 51, I love this. You can make money in Los Angeles, unlike Houston. Galveston, and Louisiana, where people were more aimless. They could not make money no matter what they did. But in LA, if you pushed, you could in fact make money. We learned that some of his southerner friends could not make it in the hardworking world of Los Angeles, so they hightail it out of there. This is told through the eyes of Easy Rollins, just as it is in the film, and you get that on the first page, where it's clearly seen through the eyes of Easy everything that's happening, from Joppy's bar on. It's 1948, 
Easy is in fact used to white people now. Whites are talked about, in my opinion, through a judgmental lens, the entire reading experience. Whether it's coming from Easy, Coretta, Mouse, Daphne, or how Carter views the world. It's always showing white people in a negative light, or in a crooked light, or in a light that they simply cannot understand, Easy's plight. He was in the army for five years, and DeWitt Albright met Joppy in 1935. So that's just a few years before the war. Easy is in fact from Houston, Texas, so that's another thing that he and I have in common. We have that in common, and I have in common with Walter Mosley, that Walter Mosley is an only child. He worked at Champion Aircraft and then was laid off. This is exactly the same as it is in the film. And DeWitt Albright, as we already know from the film, does what he calls favors for friends. Raymond Alexander Mouse. I think it's worth noting here that Joppy does not remember Mouse. I don't know why. I'm surprised that he doesn't, because this seems like a pretty tight-knit community. We get the detail here in the novel on Easy's home, for example. What type of flowers are growing there? Delilah's, African violets, wild roses. Beautiful attention to detail. And again, with this kind of detail, you would expect this to be a very thick novel, but it's not at all. Easy blames whites and blacks for his stutter and absent-mindedness, he calls it, that he sometimes feels when challenged out in the world. This is briefly talked about, but again, it's just adding another sliver to that character development. Easy meets Manny and Sharif at the Alvarado building, then he meets DeWitt Albright, who's expecting him. Wild Turkey, which I happen to love, particularly Wild Turkey 101, is what DeWitt Albright has to drink on his desk. Now, description of DeWitt Albright, captured so gorgeously in Devil in a Blue Dress the film, white attire, big black gun, sleek, and the gun is in fact a cannon, just like it is in the film. And then DeWitt Albright says, in regards to the Devil in a Blue Dress, not bad to look at, but she's hell to find. And this is also utilized, just like in the film, very good line of dialogue. Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. She likes jazz, pig's feet, and dark meat, if you know what I mean, just like in the film. But in the novel, as we're learning about things through Easy's point of view, he does not care for this language. Easy, walk out the door in the morning and you're mixed up in something. The only thing you can worry about is if you get mixed up to the top or not. One of the greatest lines of dialogue from both this novel and the film, delivered so expertly by Tom Sizemore. He told me a few stories, the kind of tales that we call lies back home in Texas. It's very honest writing. It's catchy, it's honest, and it's memorable. And I goddamn appreciate it. DeWitt asked him if he killed hand-to-hand -hand in the war. You see, DeWitt Albright has leanings and a proclivity for violence. He tends to almost be salivating at the mouth whenever he thinks he's going to be told a tale or a memory, or a testimony of violence. And then in describing Junior, this is what is said. Junior could chop cotton all day long, and then party until it was time to climb back out into the fields. Great description. We learn that Frank Green's moniker is Knife Hand, because he's so quick with the knife, as is shown in the film. And Matthew Teron dropped out of the mayor's race. Well, in the movie, it was Todd Carter who dropped out of the race. So that's a little bit of a switcheroo. And we learn that Easy has not seen his friend Mouse in four years and he was in the army for five years. Back in Fifth Ward in Texas, we learned that men would kill over a dime wager or a rash word. I love learning about Easy's history, particularly about his time in Houston, the military, and when he was out on his lethal escapades with Mouse. Joppy Shag and Easy are at Ricardo's pool. This is a longer scene in the book, and I really enjoy it. Vernie's place is another place. It's, it's in the local area. It's a brothel or a bordello, because what happens is Easy is desperately trying to get the attention of Frank so that he can track down this girl, Daphne Monet. So he starts hitting up all the hot spots where bootleg alcohol is sold. We learn that the barbers in this community had to be tough. Their clientele and shady business was conducted on their property, so they had to be no-nonsense and they were not fucking around. We learn about the illegal network at the liquor store. Again, the novel spends a lot more time dealing with how Frank Green transports the alcohol, how he steals the trucks, and how it is disseminated to the local businesses. And again, talking about easy liberating the Jew camps, you know, in Auschwitz and other areas, he says that Jews understood the American Negro, because they basically, he says in Europe, the Jew had been a Negro for more than 1,000 years. Can you see how the author is incorporating his own life experience, or at least the perception of his experiences, into his characters and the writing? Because I see it. Now, Easy confronts Joppy. But in the book, he does not beat on the marble top. However, he does have lead pipes on his person in case he does need to beat up the top. But in the film, he starts using a hammer to smash the marble into pieces. 
Daphne's dad basically raped her at 14 years old. She had to learn very grossly and unfortunately about sexuality and animalistic urges when they were at the zoo together when she was young. Now, Easy calls information to get the address for DeWitt Albright. This, of course, is different in the film. In the film, he gets it from Joppy's mouth as he's beating up Joppy's marble top bar. But we learn that he has a house out on Route 9 in Malibu Hills. In the novel, Daphne is naked in the cabin and she's being chastised or threatened by these men, including Joppy, which of course is also different than the film. It's unclear on whether she's raped or not, but she is in a bad spot here in this cabin. In the film, Joppy is just at the bar and Denzel Washington takes him by gunpoint and has him tell him and Mouse where DeWitt Albright's cabin is. But here, Joppy is actually there threatening Daphne Monet. There's a shootout in the book. It's probably done a lot better in the film. But DeWitt Albright gets shot and he drives away wounded. Well, Mouse calls Daphne Ruby and he demands the $30,000 that she took from Todd Carter. It's very interesting that Mouse knows Daphne's real name, which will of course come into play later. We learn that Frank was beat to death behind the bar and we are made to think that it was Joppy, which it ultimately was, but he denies it. He denies it because he either gets in these blackout rages and he just can't remember, or he simply does not want to make his case any worse. But Mouse used to know Frank, and he remembered Ruby when they were young, and he remembered that she was a part colored woman. Mouse then kills Joppy. He shoots him in the nuts, and then he shoots him in the fucking head. In the film, he simply was strangled, and it was done off camera. Ruby is the half-sister to Frank. Now this devil in a blue dress, she seems to be the devil of many colors, but make no mistake, she is quite demonic, and she is a chameleon in her demon qualities. Daphne killed Tehran for touching boys. This is completely different than the film, but it really seems more like a just dessert or the galaxy taking out its own trash. They all split $10,000 at the end of the book. $10,000 for Easy, $10,000 for Mouse, and $10,000 for Daphne. As Todd Carter is a rich son of a bitch, he doesn't care about the money. And then another striking difference is that in the novel, Daphne and Easy have sex in his friend's house, and it's like they almost have like a whole weekend together. But then towards the end of the book, Easy tries to go over and embrace with Daphne, and she starts screaming at him, don't touch me, Easy. She's basically having some type of belated nervous breakdown, but we learn that she's Ruby Hanks from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And as you recall, several of Easy's people growing up, they're from Louisiana, Texas, there's a certain kinship there. And of course, Daphne is half black, although in the novel, she's got blonde hair and blue eyes. She appears to be Aryan or something, but in the film, played by the beautiful Jennifer Beals, she has darker features. Easy tells Todd Carter everything through a very specific lens. I guess he feels some sympathy for Todd Carter, or he's just trying to ensure that he gets his payday. I'm not sure, but he's very select with the details that he shares with Todd Carter to kind of let him down easily. And if you watch the movie and you read the book, obviously that will make more sense. But Easy goes with Mr. Carter to meet with the deputy mayor, Lawrence Wright Smith, to basically clear Easy's name. In the film, this was basically just like a phone call and a favor. But he has already started, by the end of this novel, he's already started his private investigator business. In the film, he mentions at the very end that he's thinking about starting one. So that's a minor little discrepancy. Then Dupree and I settled in to tell lies about the war. I like the honest, gritty, and cynical writing that's prevalent throughout. Daphne be asleep now, said Coretta earlier in the book. I'm just giving you some of the highlights. And that in the film was done so well because you could see it on Denzel Washington's face. Like, what the fuck did you just say? You know I've been trying to find this girl. Have you been holding out on me, Coretta? That type of thing. Easy talks about this voice that he has that's in his mind that keeps him alive when he gets in trouble from time to time. Also, it's important to note that Easy was at D-Day, which obviously was a significant moment in our history, in the world stage history. He likes to drink vodka and grapefruit soda on his porch and basically just watch the day pass on by, which actually sounds pretty fucking pleasant if you ask me. We get more detail on his past in Houston, how he came west for opportunity. The Santa Monica Pier, this is exactly what happens in the film, where DeWitt Albright holds this poor dumb bastard at gunpoint. Ezekiel Rollins, I whispered, I didn't want her so familiar as to use my nickname. So in the film, when he's standing on this pier waiting for DeWitt Albright to show up, we don't get a narration. It's just a scene between Denzel talking to this local white girl. But in the book, I like that we get that what's going on in his head. And then there's a song playing in the car, Two Lonely People by Fats Waller. Well, who the fuck is Fats Waller? He was an American jazz pianist, organist, composer, 
violinist, singer, and comedic entertainer. His innovations in the Harlem Stride style laid much of the basis for modern jazz piano. Very fascinating. Waller started playing the piano at the age of six, became a professional organist at 15, and by 18, he was a recording artist. Get a load of this shit. He died from pneumonia at 39. That is like almost a James Dean story. DeWitt Albright pays Easy another $100 when he gives him his business card. So just like in the film, Easy is making money hand over fucking fist. We, of course, learn more details about why he got fired. And he talks about his previous boss at this air yard, Benny Giacomo. He says he wasn't a businessman. He was a plantation boss, a slaver. He doesn't mean this literally, of course. The two cops here are Mason and Miller. The character actors that they selected for them in the film were great. Junior calls Easy, then Daphne does. On the phone, Daphne, here in the book, speaks with a French accent, but in person she's like a southern belle. See? It's just a kind reminder that she is a chameleon throughout, and that is kept very consistent. In the film, she does not speak with a French accent, although she does have a certain posh and sophisticated manner about her. He talks a lot about the war and killing. He talks of race relations in the war. Now, DeWitt Albright's card has the following on it. Maxim Baxter, personal director, Lion Investments. Todd Carter is the president of Baxter. This is interesting. Carter, when he does meet with Easy, similar in the film, he offers good brandy and he is effeminate. Now, this is through the eyes of Easy Rollins. We learn that Daphne took $30,000 from Carter, very similar to how it plays out in the film. McGee, who is killed in both, was a blackmailer and a homo pimp. He worked for men with sick appetites. When I talk about that seedy fucking underside to Los Angeles, that is a whiff of what I'm describing. And of course, this all ties in with Terrell. She is described as having a blue dress, this demonic femme fatale. Blue dress, blue heels, blue stockings. And Todd Carter actually confides a lot to Easy when Easy is visiting him in his office. Todd agrees to pay $1,000 if he will find her. And lastly, there are some noteworthy observations. At the pier, where Easy is waiting to meet with DeWitt Albright, and these white teenage punks come over to him, in his mind, Easy is thinking, he's ready to kill these crackers, and he's still a killing machine. This is what I'm talking about. The violence that he expressed in the war is still alive and well. And this is another great line of dialogue from the sick and demented DeWitt Albright, not shown in the film, it is on full display here in the novel, when he's trying to threaten these boys. And I'd be proud and happy if he was to lower himself to fuck my sister and my mother. Ooh, DeWitt Albright, you dirty dog. Albright takes an interest in the violence of Frank, and he asks Easy questions pertaining to this, just like in the film. Junior calls Easy and tells him about Daphne and Frank Green. This is different. In the film, this does not happen. Easy's, quote, voice coming to him after fleeing McGee's house and Daphne leaves. This is how Walter Mosley describes in his book, The Worst Kind of Racism, page 122. I could tell that he didn't have the fear or contempt that most white people showed when they dealt with me. It was a strange experience, but I had seen it before. Mr. Carter was so rich that he didn't even consider me in human terms. He could tell me anything. I could have been a prize dog that he knelt to and hugged when he felt low. It was the worst kind of racism. The fact that he didn't even recognize our difference showed that he didn't care one damn about me. To me, this is disturbing, because through the eyes of this Walter Mosley character, through the eyes of Easy Rollins, it does not appear that white people can win, because there's no world that is portrayed here where there is a harmony, there is a mutual respect and understanding through the eyes of this character. It's no small observation on my part that Easy is racist, and a lot of the characterizations and how various people are shown or described, you would think that he was as racist as he perceives them to be towards him and his. So it's definitely an interesting dynamic. And there's a new character briefly mentioned in the novel, Zeppo, and he's described as a corner urchin or a hustler. As I mentioned, barbers had to be tough to deal with the unsavory element conducting business on their barbershop premises. Much more detail is given on the liquor distribution, and I love this line that Easy says to Mouse, guilt don't tell time, talking about Mouse's murder of his stepfather. Page 20, John's Place. Paying off police, running an illegal nightclub through back of the little market. Page 31. Knife hand, because he was so fast to pull a knife. That's describing Frank Green. Page 123. There was no way out but to run, and I couldn't run. So I decided to milk all those white people 
for all the money they let go of. Do you see what I mean about Easy Rollins? Page 125. Ricardo's pool room on Slauson. A hole in the wall with no windows and only one door. No name out front because either you knew where Ricardo's was or you didn't belong there at all. I love the style. I love the writing. Again, it's a slight knock. I don't really care for a lot of the misspelled words for purposes of the dialect or the lingo, but you just have to take that for the sense of posterity and authenticity and I guess accuracy. Final verdict, I really, really enjoy the book. I like the characterization. I like the development. I like more of the backstory. When you have Tom Sizemore holding a switchblade to the eye of Denzel Washington in his own fucking house and then asking Easy to get him liquor, the way that was shown in the film was just so tense and it was so mesmerizing. I think I like the film better, but it's very, very tough, just like Winter's Bone was. The last page has been flipped. All spoiler plot points slipped and cinematic comparisons stripped. You pragmatic, dramatic, both novelized and cinematic fanatics enjoy both mediums, no doubt. Whether it is an enlightening entertainment you read or, two, the astonishment of your visual cortex, some slick flick you choose to watch, you can experience both insightful delights on Kimohawk Sessions. Lingering last-minute advice. Please don't settle in your respective layer nook with a digital book, but rather grab a primitive analog paper-bound book that can silently amuse you and draw your very personal DNA through a looming paper cut. Our own desperation into evaporation comes when the film medium has completely waylaid and won over the cozy nook headspace of perusing an amusing paper-bound book. Revisit the aurally pleasurable auditory halls of my Kimohawk Sessions library soon for your next Slick Flick Pick slash Slick Page Flip comparison. Hellbound Binding 6 Slick Page Flip Their Fair, His Lair, and Batman Fanfare Graphic Novel Read by Nightlight Graphic Novel slash Graphically Violent Film Comparison Gotham by Gaslight Which will be my first graphic novel review. I am highly excited about this. Make not one mistake about that. Your worthwhile bibliophile and cinephile out.